All right. Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 9? And Johnny, if you wouldn't mind flipping those lights on right there. Thank you. All right. I'm going to talk about that actually today. Let there be light. But anyways, um, so uh, we are in uh, chapter 9 in our study in uh, the Gospel of John. If you're new with us, we want to welcome you and just let you know that. And um, But actually, chapter 9 is a continuation of chapter 8. So you, never, you just can't get away from chapter 8, can you? All right. And um, as we said, chapter 8 is built or, uh, was built around uh, Jesus' statement in verse 12 that he said, I am the light of the world. Now, that was uh, a declaration of divinity. John builds his gospel around seven of those, of those I am statements. And, uh, of course, this got him in hot water with the Pharisees uh, as he proclaimed his divinity. And uh, things got pretty heated in chapter 8. In fact, back up to verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly, the name of God. Then they took up stones to throw at him, because in their minds he had blasphemed. Penalty for blasphemy was stoning. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from when? Birth. Hold on to that. Okay, let me just stop and say this. The first seven verses of chapter nine, I believe the Holy Spirit is presenting both a practical exhortation and then a spiritual application in these verses. I'd like to start with the spiritual application first, and I'm calling this subpoint under a spiritual application. I'm calling this first point the consequence of sin. Looking at this. Uh, not, you know, focused on just what happened here uh, right before our eyes, but looking at the bigger picture and the spiritual lesson the Spirit is presenting here. So we read in verse 9, excuse me, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the disciples are repeating what the rabbis taught about sicknesses and handicaps, handicaps like blindness. They taught that they were all due to sin in the afflicted person's life. That explanation seemed fairly satisfactory to most, although it didn't answer the question as to why, since all people are sinners. Why only some sinners were afflicted with certain maladies and genetic defects, while other sinners remained healthy. The rabbis explained it this way. They said that the reason some were afflicted with disease and handicaps, while others were not, was because those afflicted were especially wicked and their sins exceptionally egregious, warranting the judgment of God upon their lives, henceforth diseases and handicaps. However, the rabbis really got into hot water when they tried to explain how babies were born sick and handicapped. Well, they did so by teaching that either it was the result of sin on the part of one or both of the child's parents, or they taught that the baby itself sinned in the womb. 
You know, when you're, you got a bad theology and you don't want to admit it's wrong, you just push it and push it and you get yourself backed into a corner, okay? They believed in prenatal sins. How that is possible, I don't know. But that theology was at the heart of the question that Jesus' disciples asked him that day, Rabbi, who sinned? This man? In other words, did he sin and bring this on himself? Well, he was born blind. Well, that means his parents, and they even thought grandparents could be involved in that sin. But, you know, maybe his parents or grandparents uh, sinned that he was born blind. Now, listen to me. Uh, we need to kind of stop and just say this, okay? Now, while it is true that all sickness is ultimately, ultimately the result of sin. I'm thinking of Adam's sin. Not all sickness is brought on by some specific sin in the life of the person who is suffering. Be careful, okay? There are those among us, not here, but among us in the Christian church who believe that that if a person's sick, they're not right with God. If they have a handicap, well, they got to get right with God and they'll get out of that wheelchair or whatever. One author made this further observation. He said, and I quote, like his fellow Jews, the blind man no doubt believed his handicap was a direct punishment for his own sin or that of his parents or even grandparents. And that thought must have added immensely to his suffering. In his mind, and in the minds of most of the people who came in contact with him, his blindness was a vivid representation of his own sinfulness and of God's judgment. That belief gave crippled, blind, and diseased people even more reason to shun crowds, end quote. I have talked to people over the years who have come to our church from more to faith churches. And one in particular, I remember we had a lengthy conversation after church one Sunday, and he informed me that he had gone to a Word of Faith church for 20 years. And over time, he became more and more disillusioned with this teaching until finally the Holy Spirit let him out. But he was a, a treasure trove of information for me since he had lived that for 20 years, okay? And he told me in these churches, this kind of thinking is very much alive. That when a person comes there, if they're sick or handicapped, Initially, the body of Christ will rally around that person and will try to encourage them to have faith because if they had faith as a Christian, it's their birthright to be healed. And so everybody initially would gather around and be praying for them and encouraging the person to exercise the faith they needed to get out of that wheelchair or to be free of this sickness. But after time, when the person didn't get healed, then they were shunned. Then they were shunned. Okay, well, your sin must be too important to you to let go of. Therefore, I can't hang out with you anymore. Because you're obviously sick. Because you're in sin. It's the book of Job, folks. Okay? Think that guy started with the Word of Faith movement? These folks have been around forever. Okay? Yeah, if you're right with God, you wouldn't be sick. If you were right with God, you wouldn't be poor. The sad thing about it is when, the, when a person needs his family or her family in Christ the most, to rally around them and, and encourage them and pray for them, they're abandoned. That's a terrible theology to throw on somebody. In verse 2, again, the disciples asked the Lord, okay, Lord, so, you know, uh, Rabbi, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Him 
must have been in the womb, or his parents. Jesus answered, verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, guys, at this point, I, I feel like we need to bring up something that we studied uh, when we were studying the book of Exodus, something we looked at. You don't have to turn there. It comes out of Exodus chapter 4, where God is telling Moses to uh, go to Pharaoh and tell him to, to let uh, my people go, the Lord said. And Moses says to the Lord, well, Lord, he says, I'm not eloquent, verses 10 to 12. Uh, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servants. I, I've never been eloquent, Lord. I've had a speech impediment from birth. This is an important thing you're asking me to do. Don't you want somebody who is a, can be a spokesman for you and can speak clearly and eloquently? I'm not the guy. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Verse 11, this is a key verse. Exodus 4, 11. So the Lord said to him, to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have I not, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should say. Guys, this is an interesting and important statement by God to come to terms with. A statement we need to understand. First of all, is God actually saying that he makes some people handicapped at birth? Let me answer that as best as I know how. Yes. Yes, that's exactly what God is saying. I don't see how you can interpret this any other way. Yes, God is telling Moses, and through Moses, all of us, that he makes some people handicapped. Now, this idea is supported by our text this morning in John 9, verse 3, where after Jesus tells his disciples that this man's blindness wasn't the result of any sin on his part or on the part of his parents, the Lord then adds that the man in question was born blind so that, listen, the works of God should be revealed in him. Or as the Amplified Bible puts it, he was born blind in order that the workings of God should be manifested, displayed, and illustrated in his life. In other words, God created this man so that he could bring glory to God. Now, of course, right away people would respond, but isn't that cruel? How can a God who claims to be a God of love and mercy and a good God, how can he even claim to be a good and loving God when he creates some people handicapped? I think to say that God creates handicapped people is probably the wrong idea. He allows some people to be born handicapped. Listen to me. Sin created handicaps, sickness, and death, not God. This is not the world God originally created for us to live in. God made a paradise for us to live in, where we were supposed to live lives free of disease forever. It was man's own rebellion against God that caused the fall and brought into this world death, deformity, disease, and handicaps. But listen, since this is the world we have brought upon ourselves, God is not against using the consequence of sin 
to glorify himself so that people would know he's real and come to him and be saved. I know that sounds like a foreign... I know that unbelievers would, you know, beat me to death if I said that to a group of unbelievers. But even a lot of Christians are not at a level of maturity to understand how that God will use adversity and heartache and pain and handicaps to bring glory to his name. But the idea is you have to understand something. Suffering in this life is only for a short time and will yield for us an eternity of blessings and rewards. So when God allows adversity in the lives of his kids, unfortunately, so many Christians are looking for paradise on earth again. You know, they want God to lay up for, lay up for them treasures on the earth. And any talk about a God who will allow handicaps and sickness and things to touch a life, the life of a child of God to bring him glory, it's anathema to them. Their carnality will not let them embrace that concept. God is up in it. And if you look at life from Earth's perspective, as Solomon wrote it in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, S-U-N, sure, you only see it from this perspective. It seems cruel for God to do that. If you look at life from heaven's perspective, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we ought to be looking at this life through the lens of eternity, wherever little adversity, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. And, and Paul says, this is how we deal with handicaps and adversity. We recognize they're only short-lived and God is using them to give us an eternity of glory and rewards. In that regard, it's not cruel. It's the ultimate kindness and grace. I was telling first service, there are people that God is allowed to be born with some of the most horrendous handicaps. One uh, guy, his name is, uh, is uh, Nick. Uh, somebody showed me a picture. I didn't remember his name. I saw him on a YouTube video. He was born without any limbs, a torso and a head. When I saw this guy on YouTube preach the gospel, I was taken back by the power of, of the spirit upon this man's life. The attitude, just the, the joy, the giving glory to God. I'm sure a lot of people would be looking at Nick and going, well, if he can have joy in his circumstance, I can have joy in mine. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. I think a little uh, Bethany Hamilton, who's now married and is a child, I think at least one, the, the one that the movie Soul Surfer was made about, right? A world-class surfer standing on a pier one day, just talking, I think, to a friend. All of a sudden, the shark comes out of the water and takes her whole left arm off. So up to the shoulder, right? This little gal had so much fortitude that God gave to her. She had such a fighting spirit. She wasn't going to quit. She wasn't going to feel sorry for herself. She learned to surf with one arm. And when people all over the world began to see her compete again with one arm, they wrote her letters by the thousands and thousands telling her what an inspiration she had been to them, where they were going to now go out and overcome their handicap. And Bethany said, she said, I never knew when this first happened what God was going to, how he was going to use this. 
but he has taught me I am able to embrace more people with one arm than I ever could with two. And she has been preaching the gospel to people all around the world because of the adversity God let her go through. I mean, this is what it's all about. Bringing glory to God. It's not cruel for God to allow us or let us go through adversities. It, it teaches us how to be Christ-like. It conforms us more, to, more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the first point under the spiritual application uh, portion of this message is that, first of all, we see, I believe, the Spirit presenting the consequence of sin. Well, blindness and other genetic defects are the consequence of sin. I want to follow that up, verses 4 and 5, with the character of the Savior. Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus is expressing here a divine imperative and one that we'll look, up, look at under the practical admonition or exhortation portion of this study. But for right now, it's important that we understand the character of the Savior. What do I mean by that when I say that? Okay, the consequence of sin, the character of the Savior. Let me say this. The dictionary defines character as the aggregate of features and traits that form the individual nature of some person or thing. One such feature or trait or a characteristic all involved in that definition. As we study the life of Jesus, the one trait, the one characteristic, the one passion that best summed up his life in ministry was, he said it numerous times, uh, my passion is to glorify my Father in heaven by faithfully representing him to the fallen people of this world and to finish the work he has given me to do. And what was that work? to call sinners to himself and to go to the cross to secure their salvation. He said it in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his passion. That was the will of the Father. That was the ministry the Father had given him to do. Guys, it's no coincidence. And this is why, as I was studying this, I really believe the Holy Spirit led me to this point that there's a spiritual application here that we need to understand. It is no coincidence that Jesus, in expressing his passion and purpose in life, you see it expressed in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. As he expressed that passion, he then referred to himself in verse 5 as the light of the world. And then he proceeds to give sight to a man born blind from birth. There's a spiritual lesson in that whole thing. First of all, you see it was sin that robbed man of spiritual light and plunged the human race into spiritual darkness. It was sin that imposed a spiritual blindness on man. And Jesus, the light of the world, came to restore our spiritual sight by bringing the light of God's truth, the gospel, into our lives and making us, listen, new creations in Christ. Just as God brought forth the original creation 
by the word of his power, Genesis chapter 1. He brings forth new creations. What are new creations? Paul tells us they are redeemed people. He brings forth new creations with that same powerful word, the gospel. In fact, Paul the Apostle goes as far as to tell us that even as God brought light into the physical creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, he said, let there be light. He also does so with each one of his new creations. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. He was talking about the original creation, Genesis 1. Who has now shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, the gospel, the truth of God, into our hearts, thus making us new creations. The same light that God spoke into the physical creation, well, he spoke light into us as new creations. But we embraced the gospel. And he said, let there be light. And suddenly the light went on, didn't it? Suddenly the light went on. I mean, before I got saved, I read the Bible. It wasn't fun. I started in Genesis. It took me six months to get to Deuteronomy. I was ready to kill myself. Oh, it was dry as dust. I'm sorry. But you're talking about an unsaved man trying to read a spiritual book. But somebody witnessed to me. You know, it was my mom, actually. But there was a combination of people. And I accepted Christ. And God said, let there be light. And then I went back and started reading the Bible again, and suddenly it made sense. Now, did I understand every single word? No, great theologians spend their whole lives and never understand everything perfectly. But I began to understand what God was saying. I mean, sure, the Bible is so deep, again, you could spend your entire life studying it and never really know it fully. But then again, it's so miraculous, it has truth that a child can embrace, such as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life in heaven. Anybody can understand that, right? But the light went on. I mean, guys, when Jesus came, he came to set us free from slavery to the devil by bringing the light of God's truth to those in darkness. He did so by opening our eyes, the eyes of those who were born spiritually blind. This was, in fact, what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus when he commissioned him after Saul had just gotten saved. And Jesus commissioned him and in the process turned him into Paul the apostle, commissioned him to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. As Paul is recounting this, giving his testimony in Acts 26 to King Agrippa, I believe it was, he tells him about this, how that the Lord appeared to him and said, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And here's how he described the Lord Jesus now described this ministry. He said to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Whenever you read passages in the New Testament that deal with evangelism, us going out or people getting saved, it's so often tied to the lights coming on. It's so often the language is eyes are opened, okay? Uh, the light has shone in their hearts. 
When the Lord Jesus Christ began his own public ministry, he went up to, the Naz to Nazareth where he had grown up, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Every Sabbath in every synagogue to this day, they read the same portion of scripture. They've got the entire, their entire Bible, the Tanakh, broken up into sections of readings that cover the whole year. So in one year, you go through the entire Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. And Jesus knew, of course, what day this particular scripture was going to be read. And so they knew he was a rabbi. He'd already been teaching some. So they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it to the part and read this. And everybody was transfixed. You could hear a pin drop. Here's what he said. Because they were all wondering, is this guy really the Messiah? Is he really the Messiah? Here's what he read, quoted in Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and listen, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are have been taken captive by the devil, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was a messianic passage out of Isaiah, and they all knew it. They all knew it. He was proclaiming to be Messiah, who had come to destroy the works of the devil ever since the Garden of Eden. Man had been in bondage to the devil. The lights had been put out. Man's eyes were blinded, and Jesus came. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't do a darn thing about it, right? That's a paraphrase of John 1. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. Some of the translations say, could not overcome it. So we have the consequence of sin, followed by the character of the Savior, and then briefly, the commission of the saint. All spiritual lessons I see wrapped up in this these few verses. Verse 6, when he, when he had heard these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And I was telling first service, I'm not sure if this is where the expression, here's mud in your eye came from. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, you know, so many things come out of the Bible that people don't even realize they throw around these little things. But anyways, um, as the chapter progresses, as we're going to see, we see this man become an evangelist for Jesus. He becomes an evangelist for Jesus, going around telling people how Jesus opened his eyes and caused them to see for the first time in his life. Well, that was my testimony and your testimony when we got saved. Our spiritual eyes were open and we began to see for the first time in our life the things of God. Now, at one point, the, the theologians were grilling him, right? You know, and, and he finally says, you know, he said, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. You know, you don't have to be a great theologian to share Jesus with people. You can be a brand new baby Christian. All you got to do is say, listen, I don't know all that theology yet. I just know that once I was blind, now I see. Here's what Jesus did in my life. I used to be a drinker. I used to be in bondage to opioids or something else. When I got saved, the Lord delivered me from all that. 
My marriage got healed. My body was healed. Wow. You don't have to be a great theologian to share what Jesus has done in your life. And by the way, that's one of the most powerful things. People often don't want to hear your theology unless you can back it up with a changed life. And we find out later on, towards the end of the chapter, he becomes a true worshiper, which is the goal, which is what all of us become when we get saved. True worshipers. Remember how the Pharisees, as we're going to see, kicked him out of the synagogue? They excommunicated him. They didn't like what he was saying. The best thing that ever happened to him. He got kicked out of religion because he found the Lord. Nobody kicked me out of religion when I got saved. I walked out. You can keep all your candles and your incense and your, and your whatever else you got going on there. I got the scriptures. I got the Lord in my heart. That's all I need. I don't need an ornate cathedral to worship God with paintings and statues and stained glass. Give me a box room with a bunch of God's people who love the Lord and study his word together. I'm good. But, but I want you to notice here a couple words that stand out in these verses. The words go and sent in verse 7. They're reminiscent of the words of Christ to his church in what we call the Great Commission. Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. And then in John 20, 21 to his disciples, he said, As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. Folks, this is what it's all about. We haven't been saved to sit. We have been saved to serve, as we're going to see in a second. But part of that means we've been saved to go. To go. Go out into the world, right? Listen, the Great Commission today has become the Great Omission. And that's a tragedy. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, This central message of Scripture pertains to the central mission of the people of God. A mission that tragically many Christians do not understand or are unwilling to fulfill. It seems obvious that some Christians think little about their mission in, the, in this world, except in regard to their own personal needs. They attend church services and meetings when it is convenient, take what they feel like taking, and have little concern for anything else. They are involved in church only to the extent that it serves their own desires. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that the Lord has given his church a supreme mission called the Great Commission, and that he calls every believer to be an instrument in fulfilling that mission, end quote. Well, the great Charles Spurgeon said on this subject, and I quote, if sinners will be damned, if they're going to go to hell, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to get saved. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for, end quote. That requires passion. Passion. Where is the passion in the body of Christ today? I don't know. I know we need revival to bring it back. 
All right, that's the spiritual application. Let me give you quickly the practical exhortation I see in these verses, and primarily in verses 4 and 5, where Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Guys, there are three key practical concepts that Jesus presents in verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 9. All of them revolved around, revolve around God. Here they are, obligation, limitation, and illumination. Now, of course, the illumination refers to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. You're never going to have your understanding illuminated to the things of God unless Jesus comes into your heart and says, let there be light, as we just said, all right? So the idea of illumination, that Jesus is the light of the world, we've already studied that uh, in our previous studies in John 8, especially we studied verse 12. You can go online and listen to that. But I do want to focus and we'll no doubt talk about I'm the light of the world again uh, in the future. But right now I want to focus, you know, with our time remaining, on those first two key practical concepts that Jesus uh, presents uh, indirectly uh, in uh, verse 4, primarily. And I'll call the first one divine obligation. Practical exhortation number one, a divine obligation. Notice what Jesus said in verse 4, verse part, first part of verse 4. I must work. I must work. And because Jesus is our example, so must we. The New Testament in general has a lot to say about Christians being servants. As I just said, it teaches that we have been saved to serve. There is no such thing as a Christian who is a spectator. I know that there really are, but that's not biblical. Every Christian has been given gifts, a gift or gifts by the Holy Spirit, and God expects them to use those gifts in service. Those that do not are not only cheating themselves, they're cheating the body of Christ. But the idea of I must work, that service is an obligation. We see it all throughout the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. When he was a st still a young boy, around 12 years of age, uh, he was there in the temple as his, uh, his parents, his mom and stepdad, uh, had brought him to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And he was, they left thinking he was in the caravan of family. I don't know, dozens of people that came, up from, came down from Nazareth. And uh, about three days into the journey going home, they realized he wasn't with them hastily made a beeline back to Jerusalem, found him in the temple sitting among the doctors of the law where they were asking him questions and he was answering. They were marveling. And his mother comes up and rebukes him. Says, son, why have you done this to us? Basically, you have, you know, you have uh, really uh, hurt your father and I. And he says, well, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Speaking of his heavenly father. But guys, the exhortation to serve is throughout the New Testament. I'll read you three, many others. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
Always be steadfast. Always be. Don't waver. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep serving. You may not see the results right now, but you will someday. Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Galatians 6, verse 9, Paul says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap our rewards if we do not lose heart. Unfortunately, guys, many Christians have grown weary in their service for the Lord, and some have retired altogether. David did this, and it was a disaster in his life. When David was in his mid-50s, of course, he had been fighting the battles of God since he was a teenager. Every year in the spring, all the way through the fall, he, would be, he had been out in the fields, in the trenches, fighting God's enemies. He had just finished building for himself a beautiful new cedar palace, again, in his mid-50s. And so it says in the Bible, in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David stayed back and sent his general Joab to fight the battles of God. While well, he kicked back and enjoyed his new palace. Well, as the old saying goes, idleness uh, is the devil's workshop. And so one evening, David was bored. So he decided to go for a walk on top of his palace roof, which was a patio. And he looked down and saw a beautiful woman bathing on top of her roof. He lusted after her. He sent his servants and they took her. And she was willing. The, the Hebrew doesn't say he raped her. Uh, she was. I, I kind of believe she knew he took a little walk every evening on top of his palace roof. And she purposely waited till he was going to do it to bathe. because She wanted to get something going. I'm convinced. Check out the study that we did in 1 Samuel, I believe, when we, or second, when we studied that. But he took her, he lay with her, she conceived, and you remember this, this story uh, of David and Bathsheba. If David had been where God had wanted him to be, fighting the battles of the Lord, he would have never fallen to sin. This concept of Christians retiring is foreign to Scripture, but a real problem today, okay? Well, you know, I've done my time. I taught Sunday school for years. I was an usher for years. I'm retired now. What do you mean you're retired? Where, does you, where do you see that in the Bible, I'm retired now? <laughs> Only one guy retired that I know of. He got in a lot of trouble because he retired. Listen, you want to retire? And even then we don't retire. You want to retire from your work for the Lord in the earth? Wait till the rapture happens. You, you don't, but even then I'm convinced, I think it's in Revelation, I don't know, 22, talks about how we're going to be going on missions for the Lord in heaven. What does that mean? I don't even know. I'm excited to find out. Look, God made us to be productive. That's how we are fulfilled, right? Therefore, I can't imagine him sticking us on a cloud with a harp in our hand for all eternity, as if that's going to really get us, you know, excited. He made us to be productive. I'm convinced we are going to be productive for all eternity. Not saving people, that's over. But for doing something for the Lord, I don't know. But um, so the first one under divine obligation, Jesus, I must work, and so must we. Number two, the works of him who sent me. A lot of folks running around like chickens without their heads in the church doing all kinds of stuff, but it's not God's work. Okay? Jesus said he was operating here under a divine directive. 
to do the will of his Father in heaven and listen, to finish his work. One of the problems in the body of Christ today, and there are many, is trying to find Christians who will serve. Now, this is not anything new, and this church, I think, is better than most. But every pastor has to go through this, where you have a lot of folks who just don't want to do anything, or very little. That's always been a problem. But there's another problem in the body of Christ, and that is Christians who do serve, but only for what they can get out of it. Some of the personal benefits behind their willingness to serve in the local church includes personal recognition. A lot of folks that want to serve to be noticed and have positions of authority even to say, look how spiritual I am. I'm a deacon or I'm this or I'm that. They crave the recognition, the praise of men. Others serve to have a greater sense of self Worth. I had a guy in the church years ago came to me and said, you know, my, my wife really needs to serve here because it will really boost her self-esteem. And when I told him, when I said to him, look, we don't serve the Lord to build our self-esteem. So no, no. They left the church. Some people serve to get a thrill. Yeah. My walk's a little stagnant. Uh, I think I'll do something fun. Maybe I'll go down to the you know the witness in Chicago, you know, in the streets. So, hey, that's you know that's real. That that's scary. I get the old adrenaline. You know, it's like spiritually jumping off a, a bridge with a bungee cord. So yeah, I'm gonna go down there and get the juices flowing. You know, put my life in danger. You know, go find some gangbangers. You better you better make sure. That God is sending you to go witness to the gangbangers. I mean, he did Nicky Cruz and Raul Reese. I understand that happens. But you better be really sure, fast, and pray to make sure that that's where God's calling you. Because that might be the last day of ministry you ever see. And I praise the Lord you'll be in heaven, but I'd rather wait till the rapture to get there. Um, some people serve purely for the money. A lot of pastors in denominations and others, uh, you know, evangelical churches even. Their biggest motivation to serve the church is to receive a good paycheck. This turns ministry from service to God to service the service of self. And you would be shocked if you only knew the amount of selfish service being offered to God by many in the body of Christ today. Service, listen, they are not going to be rewarded for. You can check out 1 Corinthians 3. Paul tells us that a lot of Christians, as they start up to the throne, to lay all their works at Jesus' feet that they had done in his name, have to pass through some kind of fire that's going to test them and the works that were not done for the, out of the right motivation, a love for God, the glory of God, they were done out of a love for self and the glory of self, they will be instantly vaporized and they will have nothing to show for their time on the earth. No rewards. They'll get, they'll be, they're saved, Paul said, because that's grace. But they won't receive rewards. That's based on your works for Jesus. Look, when self is at the heart of service, service becomes selfish. Self 
centered, me centered, instead of selfless, which is Christ centered. And when that happens, it isn't really God's work at all, is it? It becomes my work, doing what pleases and benefits me. Now, what is the work of God? And uh, we have to move it along quickly here. I'm just going to read these to you, okay? And just say this, what, you know, what are, I must do the works of him who sent me. Well, what are those works? Well, first of all, to believe, okay? Remember in chapter 6, some people came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must we do to do the works of God? He said, you want to do the works of God? Believe in him who he has sent. That's the first work, quote unquote, uh, you do for Get saved, okay? That's why Jesus came. That's the goal of why he died and rose again, right? So to believe in Jesus for salvation. Secondly, to glorify God with our lives. Jesus said this in John 17 before the cross the night before. He said, Father, I have manifested your name to the people of this world. I have finished the work you've given me to do. Jesus manifested his father to this world by properly representing his father to the people of this world. How we act when we're out in the world because in here we usually put a facade on. But when we go out into the world, and that's who we really are. Actually, who we really are is in private. But oftentimes when we're not around other Christians, you know, we cut people off and we you know, make unkind gestures as we pass by and uh, do other things. If you want to manifest God, which is what Jesus was all about, you properly represent him to the people of this world. You're kind, you're merciful, you're gracious, you're patient, so on. That's all the attributes of God. Number three, to reach the lost. We talked about this. That's what Jesus was all about, too. That's a work of God, a big one. Paul the Apostle said that, you know, I, I'm, ready to be, uh, I'm ready to be killed uh, because I have come to the end of my race and um, I have finished the work uh, Paul said, and the work was to testify to people of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul said, my work was to see people saved. And uh, he certainly gave his life for that pursuit. And then number four, quickly, uh, what is the work of God? It's in part using your gifts to edify the body of Christ. Read Ephesians 4, around verses, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, 11 to 15. You... The work of God, in part, is to use your gifts to edify, build up, strengthen the body of Christ to serve other Christians. Real quickly, we saw the divine obligation. The second and last one this morning is divine limitation. The second key concept that Jesus stresses here when it comes to the work of God is limitation. What do I mean by that? Well, he stresses how that we only have, or he was saying that he only had a limited time on the earth to serve the Father. We all have only a limited time on the earth. He said to serve the Lord. He said in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. The night is coming when no one can work. That idea, I must work while it is still day, was Jesus' way of saying, I must work uh, within the allotted period of time I have for my Father to be on this earth. God has given each of us a certain number of days on the earth. How we use them is completely up to us. Completely up to us. Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But since we don't know how many days we have on the earth, how could he be telling us that? Well, count your days. I don't know how many days I have. Well, how can I count them? That's right. 
I believe what Moses is saying is, Lord, teach us to make every day count is the idea. Because today might be my last day on the earth. And I want to do all that I can do to serve the Lord, right? Paul said in Ephesians 5, See that you walk circumspectly, not as wise, but not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. And the Greek is to you to grab hold of every opportunity to serve the Lord, not waste any time when a uh, opportunity presents itself for you to serve God. Do it, do it. We are commanded to redeem the time because the night is coming. He said, "I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one." can work he's talking about when he says night it's the limit set by God to do his work in Jesus case it was his coming death on the cross in our case it could refer to our death whenever that is it could refer to the rapture when the work of God is finished in our lives on the earth in either case we don't know the exact time of either of these events that's why we are admonished to make every day count to redeem the time it is interesting and important to observe that all references in the New Testament, when it talks about serving the Lord, they all have a sense of urgency that the Holy Spirit is uh, planted within each of these ideas. I'll read you just a few. You can come up here and look at the scripture reference afterward if you'd like. But it's interesting how that when you read the New Testament, in every place when it talks about us using our gifts, us serving the Lord. There's always an urgency, a limited period of time we have, and we are not to waste time because the days are evil. The fields are white. The laborers are few. The night is coming. The time is short. It's time to awake out of sleep. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And that's just a few we could look at. Jesus realized that he only had a limited amount of time on the earth for public ministry before he would be crucified, and he purposed to use every moment of that time to doing and listen, finishing his father's work. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, the Savior realized that he had, he had about three years of public ministry before he would be crucified. Every moment of that time must be spent in working for God. Here was a man who had been born blind from birth, uh, who had been blind from birth, his birth. The Lord Jesus must perform a miracle of healing on him, even though it was the Sabbath. The time of his public ministry would soon be over, and he would no longer be here on earth. This is a solemn reminder to everyone who is a Christian that life's day, quote unquote, is swiftly passing and the night is coming when our service on earth will be forever over. Therefore, we should use the time that he has given us to serve him wisely, end quote. Guys, you've heard it. I'll say it. No doubt you've heard it many times. There is only one life that will soon be passed, and only that which is done for Christ will last. Now listen to me. I'm done. But I want you to understand this. Very important. Because some of you are sitting there thinking, well, yeah, sure. I mean, how can I serve the Lord? Okay, I mean, I, I don't have any real talents and things. I mean, you know, I mean, they think that you have to be a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie or somebody who stands in front of thousands before you're really uh, considered a true servant of God. I am convinced most of the people 
who are who are rewarded who are rewarded the most in heaven are going to be people you never heard of on earth the prayer warriors who every day faithfully went into their prayer closets and prayed for their families and friends their relatives their neighbors for our country our leaders and so on we don't know their name the holy spirit does and has revealed one of them to us in Acts chapter 1, I think it was. Anna, remember? An old woman who was a widow who lived in the temple because there were apartments. The priests stood it. They gave this gal an apartment to live in. Probably just a, four walls, okay? Nothing fancy, maybe a table, uh, a bed mat she threw on the floor. And she lived in the temple, the Spirit of God tells us, never left, didn't leave, and continue to serve the Lord faithfully every day through prayer and fasting. I believe the Holy Spirit outed her to let us know there's a lot of closet Christians out there who are prayer warriors. And nobody knows their name, but when we all stand before the Lord, they're going to be in front, receiving the greatest reward. You could be one of those. You could be one of those. It doesn't take anything to get on your knees and pray. That's how you serve God. And that's how rewards are accrued for eternity. And then, if God lays another ministry on your heart, God bless. We could sure use your help. Come on and see me afterwards if you want to be involved. But may God give us grace to work the works of God while there is still time. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for the opportunities that you do give us. Forgive us for the wasted time, the indifferent hearts who see people that we could witness to but can't be bothered. We're on our way to the mall or we're uh, getting home to watch the ball game. Forgive us, Lord. We ask that you would pour your spirit upon us afresh. Burn up the chaff of that carnality, compromise, worldliness, selfishness, Replace it with a holy fire, a passion for souls. Make this church a house of prayer. And Father, we just pray that you would continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.